It's August 24th, 2020. This is Rook. Back in the 1990s, I did my fourth-year university thesis on the seeds of the Iranian Revolution, which became a year-long independent study for me. At the time, I figured I had ample archival evidence of what went down in 1979. But 25 years later, the narrative has evolved, deepened, and transformed around understanding not just the revolution, but the legacy of the Pahlavi dynasty. On the 40th anniversary this summer of the death of the Shah of Iran, we've invited three historians to give their perspectives through the prism of 2020. To begin today, a feature interview with the acclaimed academic and author of The Shah, Dr. Abbas Milani. I'm Gian Gomeshi. This is Rook. Episode number 38 of Rock. Salam Dustan. How are you guys? Thank you for the ongoing feedback. Let me say that first. Some great letters about the story of uh, Sadari, the Iranian Schindler. This is from the interview with Fadibor's Mokhtari on our last episode. Uh, and we're still hearing from you about the feature with Mother Miracle, Shahlo Etifag, last week. We will get to all of those comments, those letters on our discussion panel on Thursday when the team reconvenes. One of the members of that team is Groovy Shaya. Hi, Shaya. Hello, Zianja. Khubi. I'm okay. You know, I'm looking forward to Abbas Milani joining us in a few moments. Yes, me too. Um, to be transparent about this, we have Dr. Milani today. Then on Thursday, the author Andrew Scott Cooper, who has a recent book about the final years of the Pahlavi dynasty. And then the historian Muhammad Amini will also be joining me. They all have some different perspectives on the Shah and Iran in the 20th century. So we will cover some varying historical ground on this as far as narratives go. A um, couple of announcements before we get to Dr. Milani. Uh, I, I should mention uh, uh, this weekend we dropped for the first time uh, our first episode with Farsi subtitles, with Persian subtitles. Yes. Uh, it's Erfan, our friend, the superstar uh, Iranian rapper, yes. hip-hop pioneer. Yes. And... Uh, you can see that on Instagram and our Telegram account. So that's Rook Media, uh, and it's the Airphone interview in its entirety with Persian subtitles for those who enjoy reading in Persian. In Persian, yeah. <laughs> Farsi Um I also should mention we have folks who have been generous supporters of Rook to keep us alive, and, and today I just want to give a shout-out to a prominent Iranian-Canadian architect who... This is interesting, Shai. He insisted his name not be used because he says he's, he's this humble guy. He doesn't want it to be about advertising for him. And he tends to support a lot of arts and culture and events when it comes to the Iranian community. Never asks for his name to be used. Wow. He likes to just be supporting. And he says, no, I don't want it to be about promoting anything. 
Um, in this case, when he heard that we had Dr. Milani coming on, he said he wanted to support this episode in particular. He believes that we need to know our history in the diaspora, and that is the key to our progress. So anyway, a special thanks to you, uh, I, this generous man. <laughs> I, I know this is uh, your thing to support all kinds of culture and do so quietly, but it is much appreciated. All right. Should we get to our guest? Yes. Here we go. Well, on this 40th anniversary summer of the death of the Shah, we want to use this occasion to take stock, if you will, of where we are at in understanding the history of Iran in the last century, the place of the Pahlavi dynasty, and the precipitance of the 1979 Islamic Revolution. And thus, it only makes sense that we also turn at first to Dr. Abbas Milani as well as being one of the best-known intellectuals in the Iranian diaspora and an acclaimed author of books, articles, and compendiums dealing with Iran and Iranian history. Professor Milani is the author of the definitive biography of The Last Shah of Iran, entitled The Shah, published in 2011, tracing the late monarch's dramatic rise and fall and his role in the creation of the contemporary Islamic Republic. In Dr. Milani's comprehensive and gripping account based on archival material, we see the Shah's life as one filled with contradiction. He built schools, he increased equality for women, and greatly reduced the power of the Shia clergy. He made Iran a global power and nationalized his country's many natural resources. But he was deeply conflicted and insecure in his powerful role intolerant of political dissent, oversaw a deadly police state force, and was eventually overthrown by the very people whose loyalty he so desperately sought. Dr. Milani also reveals the complex and sweeping road that would bring the United States and Iran to where they are at today. But in the 10 years since he published that book, has the image and legacy of the Pahlavi dynasty shifted in the popular imagination of the diaspora? And if so, how? Abbas Milani is the director of Iranian studies at Stanford University and the professor in the Division of International Comparative Studies. He's one of the founding co-directors of the Iran Democracy Project and until 1986 taught at Tehran University's Faculty of Law and Political Science, where he was also a member of the board of directors of the university's Center for International Relations. And right now, Professor Abbas Milani joins me from Palo Alto, California today. Hello, sir. Uh, hello to you, and thank you very much for your wonderfully kind uh, introduction. Uh, I remember the last time we talked, the book had uh, just come out, and I had the good fortune of coming to Canada and appearing on your program. And I was as impressed then with how prepared you were, how uh, brilliant your questions were, as I am now grateful for your very uh, kind introduction. I also fondly remember that last interview that we did, and I greatly appreciated it, and I am so energized to be speaking with you again. It's always interesting speaking to you. I, I want to do this in two parts, if that's okay. The Shah and his legacy at the 40th anniversary mark of his death in exile in Egypt, uh, and then some of your story and some reflections on the Iranian diaspora today. Will that work for you? Absolutely. Okay. So let me uh, start with uh, a question that I'm going to apologize for in advance for being some, somewhat protracted, but I want to set the context. As we see, Abbas, the, the, the statues coming down in America, 
today, as, as they have in other parts of the world. It is once again clear that the way we see history and the characters in it is fluid and can morph over time. The events of the past are rebooted or rehabilitated or, or reframed through the prism of each new era. So it's hard to ever settle on a truth, it seems to me. And part of the problem is that as time goes on, we get further away from the firsthand accounts of events. And even those who were there can have evolving memories of their experiences. So is it fair to say that no historical account is ever safe in its position as the definitive one? And for the purposes of this discussion, is it then inevitable that the way the Shah is seen is going to morph over time? Uh, in terms of uh, the answer to your first question, I think uh, except a handful of historians who believe in a kind of a positivist uh, version of history where they have facts and they connect, collect facts and they arrive at definitive final uh, answers, uh, I think now the consensus in historical and even social sciences uh, is that uh, facts of history are contingent uh, in the sense, exactly as you say, uh, they're subject to time, they're subject to who we are, they're subject to what we know, things keep evolving, uh, our values keep changing, our access to data uh, changes, uh, newly documents become declassified, Newly memoirs become classified, new relics become uh, covered, and thus our notion of history changes. And I think that absolutely holds true for the Shah, as it holds true for every historical figure. In the case of the Shah, I think he's helped with the fact that uh, in this uh, revisionism, much of what we thought we knew about the Shah was essentially based on ideological certitudes the certitudes of uh, his uh, defenders who say Iran was a heaven, literally, somebody has written a book called The Fall of Heaven, not from heaven, of heaven, uh, and the ideological constructs of his enemies who say Iran was absolutely a bleak, a despotic police state, the Shah was a lackey of the US, nothing could ever happen. The reality is far more complex, and in that polarized, polarizing sort of Manichaean description, the character of the Shah, the accomplishments of the Shah, the gray history of the Shah is much, much more, I think, positive than what either of those two uh, uh, polarities indicate. Because the polarity that says it was all good doesn't really uh, register well. That's why I think that gray narrative that says he accomplished much, but you also had some flaws. That, I think, is emerging very clear. Let me come to that. I want to talk, we're going to spend some time talking about the Shah's character and, and these different narratives uh, and historiographical approach, if you will, looking at different uh, versions of this that have, have now come out. But just sticking on the, the, the changing, the shifting, the evolving narratives, it, it also seems to me that this is amplified. I mean, Iranians, we seem to have conspiracy theories in our DNA, but we are living in a moment, even in North 
North America, around the world, uh, as a product of, uh, you know, whether it's Russian interference in an American election or uh, uh, trying to believe what we see on Twitter or Instagram or not. We're living in a, in a, in a moment where everyone seems particularly on guard about what they're seeing and in, in some cases feel the liberty to suggest they disbelieve what we would call facts. So as an aside, I actually had someone say to me recently, thinking about talking to you, I, uh, someone who, who I suppose wants a return to the Pahlavi dynasty, said, but did the, re- did the revolution really happen though? Uh, he said, I mean, he said how do you know there were really that many people in the streets? So this is a um, an emerging disbelief in what can be found, not just in history books, but actually videos of that period. Uh, it, it must be hard to then do your job in that kind of moment. Well, absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, the danger in what I uh, told you in my answer, the danger in accepting the contingency of facts, facts of history, is that it opens the door to a kind of uh, chaotic relativism where everyone has then the right to say, okay, this is my version of facts. No, your version of facts, you're not entitled to your own facts. You're entitled to your interpretation of facts. There is no doubt that there was a revolution in Iran. There is a lot of debate on how many people actually participate in it. The most credible historical narrative that I have seen, for example, uh, a, a book published by Harvard uh, University Press, says actually 11% of the Iranian population participated actively in the revolution. You would say 11%, but then the numbers for the French Revolution and the Bolshevik Revolution are even smaller. The percentage are smaller. So was it a massive consensual uh, overthrow of the Shah's regime? No. Was it a revolution? I think it's one of the more consequential revolutions. The consequences have almost all been, in my view, bad for Iran, but it's been one of the most consequential revolutions. It has led to the biggest, uh, talking about diaspora, it has actually created for the first time an Iranian diaspora. Yes. Now, three and a half to four million Iranians live outside Iran. Well, I've, I've heard seven to eight million. So I guess we disagree well, on that too, well, as Iranians. We, you know, Stanford, just uh, the Iranian uh, studies program has a program called Vision 2040, and they try to really get at the numbers in the most uh, sort of granular way they can get. Right. Uh, the number they come up with is three and a half. I, I have heard the seven million too, but even the three and a half, Three and a half is not an insubstantial number. Right. And remember, this is not a random three and a half percent, uh, million. This is some of the most educated. These are the people who thought they could make it outside Iran. That means at least they knew some language, they had some connection. They're disproportionately more educated than almost every population they have joined. They're much more educated than the American population in terms of the number of degrees, uh, high school bachelors, masters, and PhDs. So this is a big chunk of Iranian intellectual capital and financial capital that has left the country. Yes. And then the devastation inside Iran, the displacement inside Iran, the lost economic opportunities inside Iran. Iran right now, if this revolution hadn't happened, 
would be if it had gone the trajectory that Iran had in 1975. Iran would be somewhere where South Korea is. You've said a number of things there that I want to pick up on, especially um, the growth of the diaspora and the implications of that. Um, but as I say, I want let, let me stick with the character of the Shah. I mean, and it's interesting that you should mention that this book, In the Fall of Heaven, by Andrew Scott Cooper. Um, let me let me speak to that. This is a 2016 book on the Pahlavi dynasty's final days, and I should mention that Andrew Scott Cooper will be uh, joining me on Rook on the next episode. Uh, I might say he portrays Iran's last monarch as a frustrated Democrat, arguing that the Shah's liberalization program begun during the final years of his reign was just ill-timed, right when American support for the Shah under pressure from human rights campaigners was wavering. Uh, What do you say to those who believe history has vindicated the Shah's intentions in wanting to bring about democratic reforms that were legitimate actions but not sufficiently recognized at the time? Uh, I would say uh, history has vindicated him as far as I understand it in the sense that he was trying to accomplish not democratic reforms, but he was trying to create a modern Iran. He was a champion of modernity, which I think has been the major challenge of Iran and the Islamic world for 200 years. The Shah and his father wanted to create a modern Iran, except the democratic component of it. They both believed, and some people I think are now even agreeing with this part of their proposition. They both believed that Iran, the traditional forces in Iran, the power of the clergy, the power of the landed aristocracy uh, is so entrenched that unless they had an organized sort of uh, authoritarian center to the detriment of the democratic aspect of the Iranian constitution, they couldn't make those changes. The Shah more or less has said this several times. But has he been vindicated in the sense of trying to create a modern, prosperous, more or less egalitarian in terms of religion, in terms of sex, in terms of uh, private public life, in terms of the role of women in society, in terms of tolerance for religious minorities like the Baha'is, like the Jews, like the Christians, the Armenians. I think he has been vindicated. Uh, he, He was, of course, very fortunate in having one of the most incompetent regimes to follow him, But even on his own merit, he would stand, I think, vindicated in many of these aspects. You know, when I interviewed you about your book, The Shah, in 2011, um, I went back and watched that interview. There's There's a point in the interview where I'm quite captivated by your notion that the Shah had not been authoritarian enough to save his monarchy. I, I say to you, in fact, you mean the same guy whose downfall is often blamed upon his authoritarianism was not a dictator enough? And you, and you say yes. Um, this uh, Andrew Scott Cooper takes this to a, another level, and he says the Shah is fundamentally misunderstood, that he was actually a, a shy and modest man who was never really comfortable with any kind of authoritarianism. What do you think of that emerging narrative? Well, uh, first of all, that, that is not a new narrative. Uh, I remember that uh, uh, conversation as well. I didn't have, uh, I didn't go back to watch it again, but I remember our conversation, some parts of it. Uh, but the notion that the Shah was uh, a timid by nature, uh, I, I quote uh, 
I think it's either British or American diplomat. In 1952, I quote him. Uh, I don't quote him in 1952. I quote the document from 1952 right. that says, Shah is a Hamlet-like character. So the notion that the Shah was indecisive, the notion that he was shy, and the notion that he was private, the notion that he was, in a sense, a reluctant king, uh, those are very much uh, part of uh, my argument about his character. His character was this uh, shy person, uh, very much reticent to use violence, uh, very much reticent to uh, for uh, uh, use uh, extreme forms of coercion, for example. Although under his regime, some of these coercions were used. And I still believe that if he had used the full power of his uh, military, for example, in the last few months of his reign, he might have been able to at least survive for a few more years. Uh, so, you know, he was not authoritarian when he needed to be authoritarian because he, I think he was, uh, and I, uh, I'm almost sure we had that conversation, I think he was, you know, what uh, in political science we call an authoritarian personality. That's the personality that is very assertive when he or she feels empowered yes. and is very hesitant when she or he feels uh, overpowered, but it is hard to connect the dots sometimes. I mean, I'm, I'm, w without taking a position on this at all. I, I, uh, to, 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 to hear. Well, he was shy and timid. He really didn't want to do these things. I mean, he presided over a regime that puts you in jail, right, for exercising dissent, a dissenting opinion. So. The shy and timid part is is hard to figure out. Um, not that, that that wasn't necessarily his character, but but how he enabled that kind of uh, sabak, etc., to happen. Then it was an evolving uh, image, evolving reality. You know, when he comes to power in 1941, he's a different person than he is in 1975, and he's a very different person than 1978. It's hard to connect the dots, as you say if we need neat descriptions of these historical yes. figures. Uh, they often don't uh, satisfy our craving for neat explanations. Uh, they have complicated characters. They, you know, the Shah was one of the most uh, consequential leaders in the history of Iran in affording women equal rights. Uh, I, I said in my book, and I absolutely believe that, that the women's movement in Iran was a, a movement of grassroots, but both the father and the son recognized that you can't build a modern Iran without affording equality to women. But when you listen to some of his conversations, when you look at some of the aspects of his private life, when you look at the interview with Barbara Walters, with the queen sitting right next to him, you ask yourself, how can someone who is this champion have these uh, misogynist views? How can someone who is the champion of women, uh, equal rights, and he was, and should be commended, have this despicable view that women are inferior, they can't even produce good chefs? I'm almost verbatim coding. Because we think if someone is a champion of uh, equal rights, for example, in private life, they must be absolute pure. Uh, we are shocked. 
Look at the private life of Martin Luther King. Look at the PhD dissertation of Martin Luther King. Right. There are hard points to connect, but he's a giant historical figure and must be uh, known for what he has accomplished. But as historians, we also must point to whatever quirks of character we find. I wonder if your, when you talk about neat explanations, I wonder if your desire to never um, fall into the category of just uh, of blanket explanations or neat explanations, as you call them, uh, has actually done a service to the legacy of, of, of the Shah. Stick with me, if you will. I mean, in other words, despite your, your I, I went and reread a bunch of the Shah, uh, your 2011 book, your critique is strong. It's not like you're soft on him. But would you say your work, such as the book The Shah or your um, hugely popular biography of uh, Prime Minister Amir Abbas Hoveda, uh, given the comprehensive nature of these books, these nuanced characters, do you think you've had, you've inadvertently maybe had an impact on the rehabilitation of the Pahlavi era? I absolutely think so. And I, I don't just say this out of the, my own ego. You know, there's a whole narrative inside Iran promulgated by the Iranian regime saying that uh, I was paid by the royalists to write these two books to rehabilitate the Shah. They, they, you know, uh, they have written literally half of a journal was dedicated to saying that I, my responsibility, the spies, the intelligence, they have all con uh, given me money to write these books to rehabilitate the Shah. On the other hand, um, I, I can literally point you to a series of articles, 12 articles in a royalist journal in London that said the CIA, the KGB, the Mossad, the oil companies, China, Russia have all paid me money <laughs> to right. uh, sully the image of the Shah by writing the Hoveda book. Both of them are nonsense, but I absolutely believe that if you describe that gray, not neat, complicated, conflicted Shah, if you're fair to his accomplishments, but also fair to points of criticism, you will have done him a great favor. I, I think these two books you mentioned are the most pro-Shah books uh, in terms of the impact they've had. I, I honestly I, I believe that. I know a lot of my leftist friends will hate me for saying this, uh, but I think that you're absolutely right. Uh, that is what their job is, and that's what history does, you know, uh, particularly when you have a figure who has been so much maligned, so much caricatured, when at the hands of the opposition, of which I was for a while a member of, he's been reduced to such cardboard characters when you actually write his history, not his hagiography. Some of these accounts, and I, I have to say, I, I refer to the fall of heaven. Uh, I, I don't want to gossip. I have actually written a review of it. It's yes, in Wall Street the Journal. Wall Street Journal. People I read can it. go and read it. I, I've given my two bits on the book. Yes. Uh, You're not a fan of that book. No, I'm not, because I, I don't think that kind of a book, I absolutely don't think that kind of book both does justice to history, and I don't think it does justice to the Shah. You know, I, I can give you some numbers in terms of how many... Uh, hundreds of thousands of times that book of mine 
in Persian has been downloaded inside Iran and read. Yes. How many thousands of copies have been published as a samizdat, although it's 600 pages, has been published and distributed in Iran. Because people know when somebody is gingerly, desperately, uh, haltingly, but honestly trying to figure out what has happened without any a priori praise or pain. But just as an aside, uh, Dr. Milani, you, uh, when you talk about the different reactions, uh, the different theories uh, on, uh, you know, you've been paid by the monarchists or you're working with the CIA, or I want to ask you about that because just talking about you coming on the show with uh, with some people, I've received some interesting reactions from Iranians in different quarters. I mean, no one denies your prominence as an academic and as a voice in the diaspora. And you obviously have many fans, as I'm sure you know. But but there will be people who will say, oh, Abbas Milani is so polarizing. Abbas Milani is soft on the regime. Abbas Milani is a neocon who's pro-sanctions and maximum pressure. These, these conflicting opinions, to be sure, which I'll bet none of which is news to you. How do you, how do you respond to it? Does it hurt you? Does it bother you? Not at all. It, you know, uh, it doesn't bother me because uh, uh, it's gossip and it's uh, almost always nonsense. Uh, and it's nonsense uttered by people who don't take the uh, trouble of actually reading what I have said. For example, you mentioned maximum pressure. Yes. I participated with a colleague in uh, Intelligence Squared. You, you have seen those uh, debates, I'm sure. Yes. Uh, Intelligence Squared are debates that are organized by this organization. and They get uh, usually four people and they debate a proposition, uh, two sides. Uh, one side defending, one side opposing, and then at the end people vote. It's a very popular, some of their shows have several million viewers. I actually took the proposition that maximum pressure is a wrong policy and has failed. This was five months ago. And my uh, interlocutor on the other side was the General McMaster. Everything I have written, and people you know, uh, if they want to find out what I have actually said, that's all on public record. Uh, I, I have been against the idea of in using sanctions that hurt the people of Iran. There was nonsense talked about about how I am a neocon. Read what the New Yorker wrote, read what the New York Times wrote about what role I had in opposing war against Iran. These are matters of public record. Uh, so the fact that somebody there uh, in some conversation says, well, he's a polarizing. The Iranian regime just recently said specific reference to me that uh, I, I am their most intransigent foe. Hmm. Something of a badge of honor, really. Oh, that's absolutely a badge right. of honor. I take that as a badge of honor. But these people who say, He's soft on, on the regime. I absolutely, right here publicly, invite them to bring one other academician who has been as systematically, as uh, unsparingly,
critical of the status quo in Iran. But but hang on, there are things you've said that people do reference when labeling you. In, in your testimony to the House of Representatives in July 2010, you said that if diplomacy fails, you would support crippling international sanctions on Iran, as opposed to the ones which were in place at that time. This is something that people have latched onto. I'm, I'm sure you remember the statement I'm referencing. Absolutely. I, I know exactly what it was. Uh, I was... Uh, testifying before Foreign Relations Committee of uh, Congress, uh, of the House. And the debate at the time was the possibility of imminent attack on Iran. And I was saying that attacking Iran is the worst thing you could do. Attacking Iran is going to consolidate this regime for a very long time, and it hurts the wrong people. Targeted smart sanctions, hitting the regime in its pockets is going to uh, be the way to bring this regime down. Yes, that that's absolutely true. But to say that uh, I am a neocon, where neocons have been advocating attacking Iran, for example, for the last 12 years, and I've been absolutely categorically, unquestionably uh, against invasion of Iran. So does it bother me that some people say absolutely not, uh, you know, uh, this goes with the territory. Okay, well, uh, let, me a, let, let me ask you about the territory. As an aside to the aside, because I'm, I'm leading us down a, a path that is slightly moving away from talking about the Shah, but but why is it seemingly, um, how do I put this, the disposition of our community to want to wanna, uh, take people down or at the very least label them or be suspicious of their intentions? What? Why is that in our DNA? Well, first of all, I don't think it's in our DNA. I also don't think uh, you said something else about our DNA. I'm not sure it's in our DNA to believe in conspiracy theories. If you look at Iranian history, conspiracy theories become a sickness and a part of our behavior, not our DNA. Essentially, in late 19th century, when Iran loses its sovereignty, when people feel humiliated, when you feel humiliated, when you don't know what's happening to you, when you have lost your faith that God determines everything, you need some explanation, and you place uh, the trust you had in the hidden hand of God, now in the hidden hand of England or hidden hand of communism. But this tendency to bring people down uh, also, I think, is part of, uh, particularly in diaspora, it's part of the, the... uh, anxieties of exile. I mean, read uh, Theodore Adorno's Minimum Moralia, his memoirs of exile. Read Hannah Arendt's memoirs about what German exile, some of them fleeing Nazi uh, death machines, were doing to one another in this U.S. Read about how one of the greatest literary critics probably of 20th century, Walter Benjamin, committed suicide because of short-sightedness of maybe this Theodore Adorno and not giving him $500 that he needed to escape to Spain. I mean, we read these things and we realize exile is the shits. Yep. It brings the worst out of people. And in our community, it exists. Uh, for every person that has said something like you quoted about me, there have been hundreds, hundreds, who in much more meaningful ways have supported uh, our efforts. Look at what we have created at Stanford. 
we have created a hundred percent, a hundred percent with the help of the Iranian American community. We haven't accepted a single penny from the US government. We have raised a lot of money, many, many millions for the Iranian studies program. We have created an archive that is now probably unmatched anywhere. That's good to it hear. It goes from Zahedi to Golshiri to Meskoub. Why? Because the bulk of the community knows something is happening here. So am I bothered that somebody gossips uh, after having a bottle of wine that he's a neocon? No, <laughs> that's his right or her right. There, there was no indication that they'd had a bottle of wine, maybe a glass or two. And you caught me on my language. When I say DNA, I'm actually not being uh, pedantically. I'm not saying it, we, it is in our DNA. I don't actually believe that. It, I'm saying we are culturally socialized to be that way uh, somehow. And, and frankly, it's, it bothers me. I don't like our tendency towards conspiracy uh, theories. I grew up around it, and uh, no, you know everything was Everything was everything is about some sort of theory, and I do understand the roots of it in the way you've just explained it, and I understand that it's not biologically perhaps inside us, but I think it is something that is indicative in our community. I mean, the only reason I, I, I wasn't trying to pick a word and uh, pick on you, but there are people who actually say it is in our DNA. <laughs> <laughs> they, they really, I mean, there are, there are scholars who say this. There are people who have said, you know, uh, Iranians have thus and so. You read some of these British, for example, diplomatic archives, diplomatic dispatches. Sir Reader Bullard, we're talking about the Shah. Sir Reader Bullard, the British diplomat, uh, ambassador in Iran in 1941. He wrote, uh, um, again, I've quoted this in the book. He said, uh, these Iranian people, you know, DNA didn't exist there. It's in their genes. Sooner or later, they're going to raise uh, this Reza Shah to the level of a Napoleon. Right. We have to be aware that these people are short-sighted. They're incapable of uh, rational thinking. I'm almost verbatim quoting a diplomat whose advisor at the time was uh, Anne Lampton. So, People do have this tendency to reduce us to what they think defines us. Like the character of the Shah, the Iranian nation has a complicated character. It mm -hmm. has produced some of the best the world has known, and it has produced some of the worst the world has known. When we talk about the character of the Shah, and when we talk about uh, emerging narratives around the Shah, uh, so much of this has to do with, of course, the revolution. And let me zoom in on the revolution for a couple of questions and, and get uh, catch up with where Abbas Milani is at on some of these questions. Uh, you, you've said with regard to, to Khomeini and the Islamic Revolution, I want to quote you, the Shah never saw where the threat came from. He wasn't alone. The CIA didn't. MI6 didn't. Um, from what we know today of the Western intelligence analysis at the time, it is clear that for the CIA and MI6, the Islamists could be the best bet to counter what they saw as the danger of the Soviet Union, right? So it seems they did recognize the possibilities with Khomeini. What, what do you make of that? Well, absolutely. Uh, they, uh, as I said in the book, and since then, there have been a lot of declassified uh, documents 
that completely show that the West, and it wasn't just the MI6 and the CIA, the French were involved in the same, uh, I think, delusion. The Germans were. <clears throat> the idea was to use Islamists uh, as an antidote to communism. Again, to give the context, this was the Cold War period. And uh, the Americans, even after this Islamic revolution in Iran, they still believed they could use the Islamists against communism in uh, Afghanistan. They began pouring billions of dollars into defending, supporting, training, arming uh, Islamist forces because they thought, and they were right, that these guys are good fighters against uh, communism. Mm. What they didn't know, and 1979 made that very clear, is that these people might be very good at communist fighting, but they also have claims to power. And once they come to power, it's going to be very difficult to dislodge them. That lesson is one of the, I think, uh, inadvertent consequences of uh, the Iranian revolution. But that error, and it, it isn't, again, I, uh, because I don't like to only blame, it's part of the conspiracy theory, I don't like to just blame the Americans and the British. Right. The Iranian intelligentsia, the Iranian opposition was profoundly mistaken. Well, here's about, let, me, let me ask you about the, the Iranian intelligentsia, because what still perplexes many Iranians, especially I think of younger Iranians who, I mean, I was alive at the time of the revolution, so a, a kid who grows up in the diaspora and wasn't alive and, and is hearing about this revolution. It's confounding that the so-called progressive forces, the intelligentsia in Iran, aligned with Khomeini, who was the embodiment of traditionalism and religious dogma. You you have pointed some blame at the Shah for giving religious fundamentalists some free reign. You've also said, as many others have, that, that Khomeini did a masterful job of portraying himself as somehow progressive whilst he was in exile before the revolution. But what does it say about Iranians in general, and especially intellectuals at the time, that there was this kind of collective hoodwink of everyone who had democratic intentions? Again, I, I, in the Shah book, I also blame the opposition for uh, allowing this hoodwink uh, to happen and having a very instrumental approach. The primary example for me is uh, an Islamist terrorist by the name of Nawab Safavi, who created the Fadayan Islam, the devotees of Islam. Uh, in 1945-46, he begins organized effort, he starts earlier, it fails, but in 45, 46, he goes after killing Kasravi and eventually kills Kasravi. For your uh, audience who might not know Kasravi, Kasravi is clearly the most important secular historian of his time and is the person who still 50 odd years after his death, 60 years after his death, has written probably the most daring critique of Shiism, hmm. the most daringly erudite critique of Shiism. The Islamists went after him in essentially what was to be a kind of a prelude to the fatwa against Salman Rushdie. They chopped him to pieces. And then they issued a proclamation that whoever criticizes us, this is what's going to happen to them. And the Iranian democratic forces aligned with this very organization in the nationalization movement. Mossadegh's supporters aligned with this force 
a member of the same terrorist organization, assassinated the Iranian sitting prime minister, Razmara. And everybody, including Mossadegh, supported this assassination effort. So uh, when we say the uh, CIA was hoodwinked, no, Iranian intelligentsia was hoodwinked. Iranian political forces were hoodwinked. Some of them had the illusion, because they were children of the uh, Enlightenment, mm -hmm. they were Marxists, they believed religion is the opium of the masses, and its age has ended. They believe religion is outmoded. We will use them, and when we don't need them, we'll discard them. We can manipulate them, and the, the, the reverse is what ends up happening. Exactly. When we talk about hoodwinking, <laughs> we've had... Um, uh, Dr. Mansur Farhang on the show about a month ago, and you know he tells this story. It's quite heartbreaking, really, of sitting with Khomeini, and Khomeini uh, says, "Oh, I'm, I can't wait to get back to home and teach." You know, and Mansur Farhang says, "I was so relieved. I thought this guy doesn't have any intentions of power. He he, he wants to go and, uh, of course, he was uh, naive or wrong or or whatever you want to uh, label Mansur Farhang in that moment." But um, uh, but do you think? Ayatollah Khomeini always knew what he wanted to do or that he simply got into a situation, saw an opportunity and saw a chance for power and couldn't turn it down? Both. Uh, he knew always what he wanted to do uh, because uh, I told you about Kasravi, the person that actually put Nawab Safavi on the job of killing Kasravi was Khomeini. Khomeini wrote his first book against Kasravi. And in that book, he says, isn't there somebody man enough? And his misogyny is clearly evident in the term. Is, isn't there somebody mad in, man enough to go kill this guy? This guy is a Mufsad of Al-Az. So that's his first book. In 1971, he publishes a series of uh, lectures. He doesn't supposedly publish it, his students publish it, but he delivers a series of lectures where he says, the rule of uh, Jurist Council of the Fari is the only legitimate government on earth for Muslims. It doesn't need popular support. It doesn't need popular sovereignty. It, Allah is the sovereign. He knew what he wanted. But in the months before the revolution, he didn't think at all possible to realize that. That's why he engaged in what he called khud'ed, dissimulation, lying. He lied to the Americans. We now have the minutes of discussions between Yazdi and uh, American representatives. Uh, I have published part of the letter he wrote to Carter. We have the minutes of many of their discussions with the Americans, uh, where they Khomeini and his allies say, we're going to essentially create a democratic uh, uh, Iran, uh, a little more religious than what we have been used to, but it's essentially something like a national front government. That's why he appoints Wazirgan, because that was part of the promise he made to the Americans. And the Americans right. were hoodwinked, partly because they didn't know Islam, partly because many of Iranian opposition figures who were talking to the Americans were telling them, don't listen to what the Shah says about Khomeini. He's really a national figure. It's not a religious figure. And they bought this. And the government of Bazargan was appointed. But as soon as the government of Bazargan came, 
you now know that they had this remarkable network that was keen on seizing power. The minute he thought he could realize his dream, he went after it. Khomeini, I, I, I can only compare him to Lenin in terms of uh, the tenacity of his ideological belief. But he had a maximum program and a minimum program. Maximum program was Velayat al-Faqih. Minimum program was the overthrow of the Shah. But he wouldn't, Khomeini, would not have been able to seduce the intellectuals if they weren't uh, sitting, if you weren't, I mean, you were part of them, sitting in opposition to the Shah already. And I had the occasion to read your autobiography, Tales of Two Cities, this week. Uh, um, I, I, it was, it's, a, it's such a rich and engaging book. Uh, you, you were in Iran in the late 1970s. You had gone back there. And I'm, I want to get into some of your story in a moment. But on this point about intellectuals, you speak of returning back to Iran in 75. And at one point, you're, you become a ghostwriter for the Queen for a stint. And, and you say... The Pahlavi regime was deeply enamored with intellectuals. But then you also say they were deeply despised by most intellectuals. Explore that paradox for us. Uh, I think what happened uh, after 1953, when Mossadegh was overthrown and the Shah came back to power, a rift began in Iran. A rift between the intelligentsia uh, and the Shah's regime, whether you were left or the center, uh, and even some of the on the right, uh, they felt that the Shah, rightly or wrongly, it doesn't matter, that's what they felt. The Shah was brought back to power by the Americans and the British, and is illegitimate. That rift was really never healed. They were a handful literally a handful of Iranian prominent intellectuals who saw that this kind of a, a entrenched rancor is damaging. Khalil Maliki was one of them. Ibrahim Golestan was one of them. These were people who said, we should criticize the Shah, but if he's doing something that is pushing the country forward, we shouldn't be uh, in kind of permanent uh, disengagement from him. There is a remarkable report an American diplomat writes in 1965. He comes to Iran, uh, and I've quoted this in the Shah book. He says, it's very surprising. The Shah has made many changes in Iran, has made many reforms. But in private, there are very, very few people, even in his government, who are willing to support him because they think, you know, he's not legitimate. So <clears throat> the intelligentsia, the intellectuals, really went out of their way to keep their distance. And I think, to me, that is part of uh, the historical responsibility of the intellectuals. <clears throat> but the Shah also had this very interesting, uh, as I described it there, he loved the intellectuals, he loved to be approved by the intellectuals, yes. but he also despised them. He called them intellectuals, you know, shit uh, thinkers. Uh, he, you know, he thought that they are phony, but he also needed the love of these phony people. It occurs to me, as I think about it, that the coalition that brought Mossadegh to power, albeit briefly, um, has a resonance to the same kind of coalition of varying forces of Iranian society that end up overthrowing the Shah in 79. It's that you can almost draw a line 
uh, or do, do you think, or what can you, what can we learn from that? Well, absolutely. I, I, I think uh, I, I will add two more points to your very uh, brilliant line. Uh, if you go to 1905-07, there's a coalition that overthrows despotism and tries to create constitutional revolution in Iran. More or less, that same coalition comes together and supports Mossadegh. More or less, that same coalition comes together and overthrows the Shah. More or less, that same coalition exists today, minus the religious forces, the conservative religious forces, and is trying to overthrow this regime. Because it has taken a 140-year effort, still unrequited, to create a secular democratic, law-abiding Iran. The future is this generation and this coalition. But there's remarkable irony to this. This coalition in 1905-07, the religious leadership was in the hands of people called Laknaini, who were very enlightened. The opposition to this movement was a clergy reactionary to the core by the name of Sheikh Fazlullah Nuri. Fast forward to 1979, that same coalition of constitutional revolution was now led by Khomeini, who was a follower not of the enlightened clergy, but of Sheikh Fadlullah Nuri. That's one of the remarkable ironies of Iranian history. There is an explanation for it, and I tried to give it in the Shah book. But now, that same coalition now stronger than ever. Now with more women in leading roles than ever. In fact, I think for the first time in this 140 years, women are now the leading force of this coalition. They're trying still to realize that dream. A secular, democratic, law-abiding Iran where public sovereignty is with the people, not with anyone else. Just sticking with that Mossadegh era for a second, that some of these classified documents that you've had access to are are extraordinarily revealing. Uh, and and I suppose one of the most shocking re- revelations is is it's generally assumed that the Shah was a U.S. puppet. But we learn through your book that many of the current regime's policies, like acquiring nuclear capabilities, were in fact started when he was in power. Where, where did the puppet narrative begin? Is that back to fifty three and Mossadegh? Very much so. A little earlier than that, uh, to the party, uh, the Soviet uh, supported to the party, uh, had begun this uh, story, but it becomes sort of the mantra of the opposition after 53. Uh, and again, in spite of overwhelming evidence that in the 70s, for example, uh, from 65 to 75, there is overwhelming archival evidence that the Shah is acting very much independently on almost every issue, and on many issues is confronting the U.S. and the British. But the opposition absolutely was adamant that the Shah is a lackey of uh, U.S. imperialism, and secondarily of British imperialism, has no independence, and other corollary facts. I want to shift to talking a bit about you and your story. Um, you were alive for a brief stint in which uh, Mossadegh was elected, but you were, of course, a little kid. Um, 
your story is actually quite fascinating. Your childhood is in Tehran, but you leave Iran for the first time as a teenager. Tell tell me about when when uh, this program is is um, partly about addressing, speaking to, speaking of, and and creating the connective tissue for the Iranian diaspora that, as we've discussed in this uh, conversation, has grown exponentially since nine eleven in the last uh, twenty years, especially uh, the the Iranian population outside of Iran. You come to America for the first time in the nineteen sixties. Southern California may now be full of Iranians, but that could not have been the case when you first arrived not far from where you're speaking to me right now what did it mean to be Iranian in America back then it meant uh, a very lonely life it meant uh, very uh, hard times finding anything that uh, reminded you of Iran you literally couldn't find there wasn't a single Iranian restaurant in all of this area there was one graduate student who had started a cello kababi at Davis, which is about 70 miles from here. <laughs> if we could afford it, if we could save money, if we could find a car, we would go there to just smell some kebab. Now, uh, in this area that I live in, around Palo Alto, there's probably 30 uh, Iranian restaurants and stores and thousands of Iranians and thousands of Iranian role models. It's not just that we have Chilakawabi, but we have a whole array of extremely successful Iranians in almost every domain who are willing, almost all of them, who are willing to network with you as a young Iranian, who are willing to help, who are willing to serve as a role model. You go from the media to the tech world to medicine to scholarship to finance. You know, two years ago, the three of the top 10 women bankers in America were Iranian, Iranian origin. So if you're a young Iranian student getting your MBA, when I was getting my, I wasn't getting an MBA, when I was getting my graduate degree, there were literally a handful of professors around that we could look up to. And some of them wouldn't want us to look up to them because they thought we were troublemakers. But now at every university, there are prominent professors, prominent scientists, bankers. Silicon Valley is filled with them. Yes. This is a remarkably rich community. If we can get our act together. I was going to say, there's a lot of building that has to happen in that community, but, but yeah, you're, you're it, it absolutely really right. Help. I mean, it's just remarkable how different it was from when I came. But did, did you talk about being Iranian? I mean, what did, what did people in California in the 60s when you arrived know about Iran? Anything? Did they, 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 they I assume they thought you were a, a handsome exotic guy from <laughs> somewhere far yeah, away? I, I went to, uh, 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 for my high school, I went to Oakland Technical High School, which was in Oakland. And it was, uh, at that time, maybe 60% African-Americans. At one time, it became 90% African-Americans. Uh, today, it's now more or less 50-50. But, you know, the, the, the notion that I was an Iranian was an exotic. There had been one other Iranian student before me there. And uh, two came a, a year, uh, about a few months after I went. So there were literally three of us. They didn't know much about Iran. It's often confused with what they called Iraq, you know, trying to 
help them distinguish between Iran and Iraq uh, with uh, a, a difficulty. When I went to Berkeley, there was, uh, by then, uh, there was bigger community, there were bigger students, and student movement was organizing. Yes. At that time, the place where you got your identity, where you got a community, uh, was the Iranian Student Association, uh, a confederation that became a nemesis of the Shah. Right. Well, you, you become a, famously, of course, you become a Maoist and a student radical in, in Berkeley in the late 60s and early 70s. And as you say, you find this group of Iranian kids to squat with. And in fact, you start meeting at a place you call Iran House, right? So what was your relationship to Iran at that time? Did you know you were going to go back? Was this a, a flirtation with America or... Uh, were you starting to feel um, like an American radical student in Berkeley? No, I never felt like an American radical student in Berkeley. I always felt that uh, I'm an Iranian, uh, that I'm going to go back. It never occurred to me uh, that I was not going to go back. You know, when I got my PhD at that time, in 75, 1975, there was still then a law. If you had a PhD, you could almost automatically get a green card. And my friend said, before you go back to Iran, get your green card. It means staying here a few more weeks, uh, and then you'll have your green card. I said, why would I need a green card? I'm going back to Iran. The idea that I would need a green card, I, I, I later regretted my stupidity, but uh, never occurred to me. I literally went back to Iran a few weeks after I finished my uh, PhD because uh, that you have to understand that's one of the things this revolution has done. The brain drain was the other way in those periods. Not only I wanted to go back, a lot of people, for example, who were physicians who had come here and stayed here and didn't ever think about going back, were going back. My own brother was a very successful physician in France, then moved to Belgium had a very successful career there. He taught at the university. He had a private... Well, by 75, he came back to Iran because everybody thought that's where it's happening. So to me, uh, I always, always uh, sort of identified myself as an Iranian student uh, and the fact that uh, I had the good fortune of being given a job at Berkeley to teach Persian language as a teaching assistant meant that I could keep up with the Persian literature, Persian texts, and kept my uh, contacts with the language rather closely. Then three weeks after I got my PhD, I was in Tehran, and a week later, I had a job at the university. Yes. You go back to Iran in 75, and you, uh, you see, it's interesting because you talk about the pride of being Iranian, but there's also an interesting relationship at the time, and I remember this. I remember this in the late 70s as a little, as a little kid, This, this um, uh, that, that Iranians were also enamored with America. Uh, you, you point out something interesting in your autobiography, that that in that period in the 70s, especially among intellectuals and progressive youth in Tehran, disdaining everything Iranian was something of a fad. You know, Persian had, you say, become synonymous with abject and retrograde. And I think about the fact that now, 
for many in the diaspora, many of whom could be the same people, by the way. I could make the case that everything Iranian is the fad. You know, the pre-revolutionary Iran is something to display and, and adore. What, what do you make of that interesting reversal? Uh, again, I think uh, this is a very astute question. It really points to what I think, and I've written about this in a couple of books and the article that I've written. It sort of speaks of a historical change that has happened. The first generation, two generation of Iranian modernists, Iranian advocates of modernity, thought of the Iranian tradition as nothing other than darkness. They thought the way to be modern is to be Western. You emulate the West in your dress, in your architecture, in your painting, in your language, in your alphabet. So be like Mike, be like right. the West. Right. Uh, but from late, from 60s, you begin to see this process that says, maybe this is not really right. Maybe there is a lot of things in our tradition that we can use for a kind of Iranian modernity. Uh, and what you are seeing now in diaspora, in its exaggerated form, sometimes it becomes kind of a, a faddish uh, caricature of yeah. it, but you see it in Iran writ large, this search to go back and try to find within the tradition, if there is there, and I absolutely believe there is. I've written literally three books, one in English, two in Persian, to say there is a lot in that uh, four now. I just published uh, a, a book in Persian uh, called uh, Humanism in Saadi. Saadi is a giant of Iranian literature. And the first two generations of Iranian modernists denigrated him as reactionary, as a clergy, as a, uh, a panegyrist of kings. But you read him, actually, he's a profoundly modern thinker. He's a humanist 200 years before there was the word humanism uh, in the West. So these kinds of efforts, sort of an archaeology of our own past to retrieve things from which we can build a modernity that is Iranian and global, that knows everything the world, or tries to know everything the world knows, that doesn't have self-loathing about its past and yes. self-ignorance. Yes. I, I want to ask you if it's okay. I want to ask you about your time in jail because you returned to Iran and not too long after you were uh, back in Iran, in the late 1970s, you were arrested by Sabak. You go to jail for a period, including time at the infamous Evin prison. Uh, you're accused of being some kind of terrorist because of your involvement with a group that was opposed to the Shah. Wh when you look back at that time through the prism of 2020, Abbas Milani, how did it change you? How did it affect the perspective you have today? Well, a couple of points. Uh, we weren't ever accused of being a terrorist. We were accused of, because we weren't, uh, we were accused of being part of a small student group that advocated what they called collectivist ideology. That was against the law in Iran. You could go to jail. And that's the clause that they used against us. So it's a very important distinction. There were people at the time engaging in what today we call terrorists. In right, those days, right. they called it guerrilla activity. Uh, but we were never part of that. We never believed in using uh, weapons in that way. You know, uh, before I even... Uh, 
uh, and I describe this in Tales of Two Cities because you kind of refer to it. You know, very soon after I went to Iran, as I was uh, teaching at the university, I realized that much of what we said uh, about the Iranian society, that kind of a bleak, Manichaean view of the Shah's regime, really doesn't fit with reality. That reality has changed. Iran has changed in many ways for good, but in many ways in uh, the traditions, in patterns that are untenable. Now, very soon I realized, I really did, uh, and, and I don't say this now, as I said, I wrote it 20 years ago, I realized that the status quo in that form is untenable, but I also realized virtually everything we said as an opposition was nonsense, that the shock can't make any change, hasn't made any change. The Iranian society was very different. And I, I realized that as a university professor, I could really do much of what I wanted to do in part of this rather silly small uh, student group. Uh, but before I could disengage, I was arrested. And the year that I was there uh, was profoundly educational because uh, I was uh, for six months of it with some of the people who would become leaders of the Islamic Revolution later on, yes. uh, from Rafsanjani and Montazari, Mahdavi, almost everybody, and some of the a very prominent leftists. And I realized how much ideology uh, and uh, the certainties of ideology and certainties of ideology don't fit with my understanding of the Iranian society. How you could be to me, I realize I, I don't want to mention names, but I, you know, I saw some of the bravest people who were defiant against the Sawak and the regime, but were profoundly ignorant about Iran or about art, and they pontificated about it with such certainty, and were willing to give their lives. And a couple of them did give their lives, not under the Shah's regime; but they were killed by the Islamic Republic. So I, I realized that the best thing I could do is sit from somewhere where I could uh, uh, study it, uh, where I could dedicate the time that I have, the energy that I have, you know, the ability that I have, if any, to unraveling this. I truly realized that the most important thing I could do, and 40 years later, I absolutely believe that, that that's a true decision, still is true, valid. The best thing you could do is engage in this culture debate because many of the things you were complaining about as being part of our DNA are really part of our culture. Mm. And only through scholarship, debate, open discussion, you're here. tolerance for people who disagree with us, tolerance for people who have a different lifestyle, tolerance for people who uh, think a little differently, this stopping from pontificating about things for which we don't take the time to study. The only way to end this fiasco is by engaging in systematic culture building. I love that. I love that you just said that. I 100% I, I feel that, uh, and I so appreciate um, that notion. You know, you, you mentioned uh, Raf Sanjani just parenthetically. It took me to a place because it was a very powerful moment in the book. Uh, this is a Tales of Two Cities, your your memoir from uh, 1996. 
it's, it's such a, you're such an interesting person and, and you're not alone in finding yourself sort of homeless in terms of <laughs> somewhere between regimes uh, because before the revolution you are not a huge fan of the Shah and then after the revolution you're no friend of the regime and you recount uh, a meeting you have uh, with Ref Sanjani to try to save a university dean uh, that the regime was after in, in 1984. Um, and you go to, as part of a group of two or three of you, you go to meet with him. You had been in jail with Raf Sanjani, but he makes it clear at the outset of the meeting that there will be no solidarity despite what you went through together. Um, it's fair to say you, that you never really had fans in either regime, right? Um, which puts you in an interesting place. Well, yeah, I, I certainly didn't have a fan in the regime at that time. And, I, but, you know, uh, the things, uh, they don't uh, bother me. Raf Sanjani made it very clear that uh, he was very kind, uh, you know, immediately acknowledged that we had spent time together. But as you said, also immediately uh, made it clear that that is not going to change anything about the outcome of that meeting. And he was remarkably frank, remarkably frank. Uh, in that course, in the course of that meeting, we said, you know, these hoodlums, these Hezbollahis, these radical Islamists have come and beaten the provost of the university. This can't be. He said, almost exactly, I'm quoting, he said, yeah, I know this is very bad, but you know, those people who came and beat your provost are the ones who go over a minefield in Iraq for us. You guys who are sitting here, you're all our critics. None of you will go on the minefield. Now we're engaged in a war. We need those guys. So I'm not going to do anything to save your uh, provost. That almost verbatim quoting him. You did a TEDx talk about five years ago mm-hmm. um, where you said Iranian society today is as far from the model that Ayatollah Khomeini had in mind as possible. And, and that may be the case, but I was thinking it would be to suggest that the Islamic revolution has somehow failed. Um, and if, on the other hand, we see the revolution as defined by the Islamic formalists co-opting and hanging on to power as they have, surely we would have to call it a success, would we not, for them? Well, again, uh, if you define it as Khomeini did, Khomeini said, Famously, he said, we didn't do this revolution for economy. Economy is for asses. We did this to create an Islamic society. In other words, he set the agenda. And that agenda was then followed by Khamenei, who has ad nauseum said, this is about a culture war. I'm quoting him verbatim. The world is trying to take Islam away from us. The Shah was trying to take Islam away from the Iranian society. Our job is to make the society more Islamic. So they have defined the agenda. I haven't defined it for them. In the sense of the agenda they have defined, they're absolutely a failure. In terms of political clinging to power, they're also a failure. They're a regime that came with a massive consensus of the people. We don't know how many people participated in the revolution, maybe more than 11%. But when they took, a, uh, you know, they did a referendum, the bulk of the great majority of the people voted yes. And I was in Iran at the time. There was no coercion. 
when the war with Iraq began, some of my best students at the law school left the university, volunteered to go fight for the regime. Many Iranian royalists who were in the Shah's, in the regime's prison, a complicity for a coup, they were given freedom to go fight the Iraqis. One of them, as far as I know, took the plane and went to the other side, went to, not to the other side, went to Saudi Arabia. The rest of them fought for this country. Today, in other words, at that time, it had a popular support. Today, they only have the support of those who they give rents to, who they give preferential treatment to, who have been robbing the country blind. If there is a referendum in Iran today, they would lose with as much majority as they won 40 years ago. So they have failed politically as well. But does that mean they'll fall tomorrow? No. This is a brutal regime. You have a few million people who have wealth beyond their wildest dreams. Uh, they're not going to give it up that easily. But are they going to be forced to give it up? I think so. Because they can't solve the problems of Iran. The problems they have been instrumental in creating themselves. Well, that's, that's a perfect segue to a final couple of questions about today. Um, and if we shift focus to the state of Iranian opposition in exile today or, or people in the diaspora, one of the first questions that comes to mind is, is that why in the final couple of years leading to the 1979 revolution, there was this unison of practically all factions opposed to the Shah in exile? embodied in vast umbrella organizations such as the Student Confederation. But today, after 40 years of theocratic rule that very few seem to be a fan of, Iranian opposition, those of us in the diaspora, seem to be in a constant state of disarray. How do you explain it? You know, th that's a very complicated question, and I've thought about it a great deal. I've talked about it to my friends a great deal. I'm not sure I have the answer, but I have some tentative answers. One is that, you know, the Iranian opposition to the Shah in the 70s was a student movement, and students are by definition a transitional uh, generation. They're thinking, uh, they have a tendency to think in these adventurous, uh, not necessarily long-term strategic terms. The Iranian diaspora today is essentially an exilic diaspora. They think they're going to stay here. They have a family. They have to worry about the family. They have to worry about Iranophobia. They have to worry about not being caught by a kind of a backlash against the infamy of this regime. Every time this regime engages in hostage-taking, every time it engages in some shenanigans, People in diaspora take some of the heat. So they have to be cautious about that. Then they have to be cautious about trusting any leadership. They have already trusted one leadership, and they have been burned. To expect the Iranian people to make two revolutions in 40 years and give their faith into one hand, I think is expecting a great deal more than any society has been expected to. Iranians have fought valiantly against this regime. The other element that I think uh, has made it more difficult to organize is because this regime's intelligence is far more active, far more clever, 
far more multifaceted than the Sabak was. People underestimate how good this regime's intelligence abilities are. The regime likes to exaggerate. The opposition likes to say, oh, these are a bunch of mullahs. They don't know what to do. The British teach them or the Russians teach them. No. These guys have been in the game of politics for all centuries. Right now, the clergy is the most, other than family, the most enduring institution. It used to be monarchy. These guys have been in politics. They know the game of politics, and they're more vicious than any intelligence. They're more clever than most intelligence. They're more devious. They're uh, willing to do anything from hiring beautiful young girls called parastus to sending agents provocateurs to pretending to be a royalist to attack a leftist to be, pretend to be a leftist to attack a royalist. They have 12,000 at least people whose sole responsibility is to create dissension in the social media. It's difficult to organize something sensible when you have this kind of a force, these gale forces uh, working uh, against you. And finally, I think we have to realize, uh, uh, to me, uh, uh, unless there is a way to organically connect the outside opposition to the Iranian opposition inside, nothing is going to happen. The main bulk of the opposition to this regime and the determining force of this opposition is inside Iran. We have to create that unity. Once that unity is created, this regime is history. Let me ask you about inside Iran then before we end up. By the way, you do have an answer to that question. That was very satisfying. Uh, the two tiers that you that you spoke of that uh, make a lot of sense in terms of uh, um, why we don't have the unison uh, or why, why there's, I mean, there's a whole other conversation to be had about balkanization of our community. Uh, and while the experience that you've had uh, of support at Stanford has been fantastic and, and in no small part due to your, um, uh, what you inspire, the confidence you inspire for uh, people to want to invest. Uh, I can tell you that doing this program twice a week, every week, um, the refrain over and over again is, is a sad lament from a lot of Iranians in the diaspora that they don't feel the support from other Iranians. Um, and so that's another, that is an issue that we, yeah. uh, that we have regardless of whether there's going to be change in Iran or Absolutely. not. That is a different conversation. I, I, I was going to ask you about Iran today. And, and this is a question that I feel, feel like we've been leading to throughout this conversation. The, the protests last year, they had some, the, the nationwide protests, these are in Iran, uh, they had some unique fi- features. Uh, I mean, dissimilar to those of the, the previous mass protests, even 2009. Notably, a seeming adulation of the Pahlavi era. You know, while most were nostalgic, some were demanding overtly the return of the monarchy. There were these chants heard in the supposed heartlands of the Islamic Republic, the holy cities of Mashhad and Qom. Uh, similar slogans heard in Esfahan. There's that story of the city's uh, Friday imam confessing that uh, he heard praise of the Pahlavi dynasty and it was the most shocking thing to him. Do you see some kind of revival of monarchism within Iran? Uh, I certainly see uh, the r- r- revival uh, or the existence of a kind of a nostalgia for uh, uh, monarchy in Iran. Nostalgia 
uh, is different than the return of monarchy. Uh, the return of monarchy, I think, is going to be a much more complicated process. It's one thing to have nostalgia for something, but it's another thing entirely to go back to a system that has now uh, no longer been in power for 40 years and has a lot of entrenched critics and enemies. Uh, its critics are the Iranian Democrats who are inside Iran, who want transition, but they don't want to go back to monarchy. I mean, that, that's a substantial force. And I, I don't know how organized and extensive that uh, desire for a return for monarchy was. Is it more prevalent today than it was 10 years ago? Absolutely. Is it prevalent in a very interestingly um, different and for the regime more dangerous population that is the high school educated, the urban poor, the unemployed, the people in small cities, which is where all of these major demonstrations happen. I think that's true. Uh, but whether that is a revival of monarchy, uh, I, I think that remains to be seen. And I think part of the problem has also been that the monarchists outside haven't been able to organize a kind of a front that I, I think is promising. You, you can't, many of the monarchists now think that the only way they're going to win this battle is by cursing everybody who's not a monarchist. That's not going to work. That's not a way to establish a democratic uh, platform. If there is to be a revival, whoever um, wins the battle against this regime is going to have to organize the widest, the widest possible coalition. The monarchists seem to be now trying to limit that. They keep trying, to, uh, they keep using more virulent language in social media. Mr. Reza Pahlavi himself doesn't engage in this. The Queen certainly doesn't engage in this. They both try to present a much more unifying theme. But I think if I was them, I would be much, much, much more forceful in telling my supporters that the kind of language, the kind of behavior that they have, the kind of... Uh, sort of exclusionary uh, language is detrimental to what you're talking about, the possibility of a revival. A final question, and uh, a personal one, if you will. You can take off the the, the scholar hat, um, uh, but, but a true, but an earnest one. You, you have spent most of your life in the United States. You are a distinguished American scholar and academic at a top-notch university. Tell me what um, tell me what being Iranian means to Abbas Milani today. Uh, it means uh, being part of uh, one of the most uh, remarkable civilizations the world has ever known. Uh, it means responsibility to defend the uh, best aspects of that culture and criticize the worst aspects, and it means being a voice to the extent that is possible of the people in Iran who are under a brutal regime that does not allow the voices of the opposition to be heard. But it's a great uh, challenge, but it's also a great source of pride. I truly, earnestly take pride in the Iranian part of my heritage. I, I know the failings of our culture, but I also know that uh, it is truly 
one of the most remarkable uh, cultures in the world. Just go from, uh, it, you know, you refer to that uh, TEDx talk. Uh, this is a culture that has given us Zoroastrianism, mm. uh, which is one of the most influential religions in the world. Its profound impact on Abrahamic religions has not been fully appreciated. This is a, a culture that has been instrumental in creating multicultural empire, in promoting kind of uh, human rights. It's a culture that has given some of the best works of Sufi mysticism. It's a culture that has given some of the greatest miniatures, some of the greatest architects of the world. We are custodians of a remarkable culture. But we're also custodians of a culture that has killed thousands, of Anushiravan that has killed thousands, of the Safavis that have killed thousands of Sunnis, uh, of a culture that has uh, engaged in uh, some of the worst forms of dogmatism. Out of this mix in the 21st century, um, we, the Iranian diaspora, because of the remarkable wealth that we have, uh, bear, us, I, I think, a strikingly important responsibility to criticize what we need to criticize, to defend the rights of the Iranian people to live in a democratic society, and to let the world know that Iran is not this regime. Iran is Iran. Abbas Milani, I have been looking forward to this conversation. It didn't disappoint. It, uh, you've been so generous with your time. I thank you, and I, uh, I can only hope that we do it back in person next time in a post-COVID era. Absolutely. I look forward, and I wish you success. And uh, I will have as pleasant of a memory of this uh, conversation as I do of our first conversation. You're very thank kind. Thank you. Thank you for this. Khodafis. Khodafis. Historian, author, and director of Iranian studies at Stanford University, Dr. Abbas Milani. Abbas Milani joined us from Palo Alto, California today. And this is full time for Rook today. Thank you so much for your support. Remember to subscribe if you can on any of our platforms. And you can reach us for comment or letters or anything you want to say to us at info at rookmedia.com. We're going to go in on some Feridun Furuqi and Uzake Pa from 1975. Mizumashi. <laughs> Tell me, be told, who 
لب سرد به چشم نطفه بازدی تاهت رو توی سیدان به کشم مثل سایه پا به پا من ترهان را نکشم Oh, you're a